Okay. Let's see here. And uh, I'm guessing that Jim is not here today. He's not going to be here because uh, whatever. So we're going to read. We're going to start with Psalm 119, verse 145. And that is... I, he gets leaving and tells me when he's leaving, but he's gone so much that I just never know. Okay, that's the letter. Kuf. I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, save me. I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the watches that I may meditate on your word. Mm -hmm. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O Lord, revive me according to your justice. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. So, Heavenly Father, here we are in the, the class today, and just a couple people here so far, so we'll pray that uh, anybody that is on their way will get here safely. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to meet and to uh, share in your word and to look into its beautiful contents. And uh, we would also pray for our brother over in Scotland, Graham, who uh, I haven't heard any news today, but I know that he has not been doing well, but he has been getting a little bit better each day. We thank you for that, and we would ask that you would continue to bring him to a state of full health and restoration. And, uh, of course, we pray for all the other people that are uh, here, that are missing, that are online, that may be watching later at some point, that if there's anything in their lives that is troubling them, that you would be with them and help them through it. And Lord, we thank you for every good blessing you've given us, especially, especially the gift of our Lord Jesus and what he did and what we're going to celebrate in the days ahead. Thank you for that. Thank you for your word, which tells us of these things. And uh, we commit this uh, service to you and we do so in Jesus name. Amen. Have you been uh, on the news this afternoon? Uh, I saw somebody sent me something. What was it that happened? Uh, big bomb. Oh, yeah, yeah. The big bomb. That's right. But that was in Afghanistan, yeah. right? So, oh, it was Sergio. He told me that when I was, uh, uh, we were talking a, a little while ago. I will tell you something about, how y'all doing there? Um, I, I'll tell you something about that because Sergio thought this was pretty cool and we might as well start with something pretty cool in the, uh, in the uh, use of those bombs. This was not the most modern. That was the most modern bomb that we have and it's the largest bomb we have. But at the time, during the Gulf War, we had uh, bombs that were, like that and uh, they were called um, weed cutters and the reason why they called them weed cutters I think there were 19,000 pound bombs and that's the 21,000 they dropped today but um, the way they got their name for weed cutters was um, they, they used them in Vietnam giant they could fit one on the back of a C-130 and then the guys would just push it off and it would blow up whatever they wanted to blow up with but they started to realize that they had people that they needed to evacuate and they had no way of getting the helicopters in and so what they would do is they take these daisy cutters. That's what they call them, not weed cutters. They call them daisy cutters. Yeah. They'd, uh, they'd take them and they'd push them off the back of a uh, C-130 in the middle of the forest. And it would just destroy everything. And so they'd have an immediate landing pad for the Huey helicopters. And they'd put their, their uh, sick on them and fly them out. So they became known as daisy cutters because they cut everything down, just destroyed it. Well, here's what they did with one of these. <clears throat> this is something that... They never published in the news, which really bothers me because it was a part of the uh, Air Force's releases, but the, the news media never picked up on it, which they should have. Is 
in the first Gulf War when uh, they were going in uh, against the Iraqis, and this is Saddam Hussein at the time, and uh, uh, they had um, the front line of the Iraqis, 60,000 men that we were to face off against. And rather than doing that, they came up with an idea, is that they sent out two C-130 uh, aircraft, one with one of these daisy cutters, it was surplus from the Vietnam War, and then with a, one with a lot of paper on it. And they flew them out over behind the Iraqi lines into the desert. Not a single person out there. And they dropped one behind the Iraqi lines. And then they flew the second C-130 over the lines, dropping leaflets that said, we just dropped a surplus Vietnam era, I think it was a BLU-18. I might be wrong on the number, but one of these giant bombs. It's a 19,000 bomb. It will do pound bomb. It'll destroy anything that it lands on. We have plenty more and we will start flying over your position unless you surrender. And in, with one bomb that didn't kill anybody, 60,000 people in a single night surrendered. surrendered. 60,000 lives were saved because of a bomb that never was used on anybody. So imagine, and that's why of course the liberal media didn't want that to get out, that we were trying to save lives, not go over there and destroy it. So anyway, that was a part of our Air Force uh, strategy. strategy, save lives while uh, winning wars, and so that's what we did. Um, anyway, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I was kind of hoping that we'd have a couple more people come in while I was talking. Is Paul and Elaine, are they, anybody? They were going to go on a cruise, so I don't know if they've already left. Maybe they've already left because I knew they wouldn't be here Sunday, so they may have left. And then Jim, Jim is always, I'm going to be gone, and like I say, he's gone so much that I don't really process it, but... Uh, uh, I knew they won't be here on Sunday, but I didn't know they wouldn't be here tonight. So I guess that's going to be everybody until uh, uh, we might as well get started. We're in the book of Romans. We're in uh, chapter 4, verse 3. And uh, let's see here. Anyway, here we go. Uh, Romans 4, verse 3. I'm going to go ahead and just start with verse 1 so we have the context. And it says, <clears throat> What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That was uh, uh, last week, and that was Genesis 15, verse 6 that he's citing. And then we come to verse 4, or no, that's what we want. We wanted verse 3. Okay, so verse 4, 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul returns to scripture again. All right, he's always going back to scripture to cite his logic for reasons about this. And this is one of the things that Paul uses here is Genesis 15, 6, and he uses it elsewhere, is the logic that, um, and maybe I'm going to say it, so I'm just going to shut up and I'll read this, and then if not, I'll talk to you about it, because um, it's a good way to talk to people about uh, how to be saved, especially when dealing with Jewish people. Where do you start with them? How do you talk to them? Well, Genesis 15, 6 is a great verse, but let me see what I, I type first. Um, uh, he, Paul returns to Scripture, the Old Testament, in order to prove his just-made statement, okay, which was, let me go back here and read the just-made statement because I'm citing it. I might as well go ahead and, uh, <clears throat> um, it says, for Abraham was justified by works. He had something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, so that was the statement. Now he's citing Scripture in order to prove that. Uh, the verse Paul selects is Genesis 15, 6, and the timing of this occurrence in Abraham's life is as important as the words used. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what's on my mind here, so I won't bother again. When taken in context and an analyzed properly, this verse disproves 
the Calvinist doctrine of regeneration. And it also shows that faith is not a work at all. <clears throat> the previous verse said, if, for if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. It is clear that what is stated in this verse, I'm sorry, it is clear then that what is stated in this verse, Abraham believed God. It's not a work, obviously, because he just said that, right? Paul began with four to demonstrate this. He is placing works and belief or faith in opposition to each other. Therefore, faith cannot be considered as a work, okay? That's one of the things that's important to understand because, as I say, every day I read Table Talk magazine, every day, and today's commentary was so convoluted about salvation and how it happens and how God selects people. It was, he uh, specifically was talking about election, and he went back to the uh, account of Isaac and, I'm sorry, uh, Esau and Jacob. And he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, right? And they say, see, this proves God's divine election. God loved Esau, but he didn't love, or he loved Jacob, but he didn't love Esau. And if you look at the verse, when he says that, he is not talking about the person Esau. And he is not talking about the person Jacob. He's talking about the people who issued from each of them. That's what it's talking about. And I'm going to show you that right now before we go on, because I want you to understand why this is so detrimental to theology is to believe that you don't choose Jesus, that he somehow decides that you are going to choose him and then regenerates you against any will of your own. It says here in, um, uh, where is this? I'm in Genesis uh, 28. Is that what I want to be in? Um, Rachel came with her father's sheep. She was a shepherd. Um, no, I want to go back to 26. That's where I want to go. I know it is. Um, 25. Yes, exactly what I said. 25. Um, <laughs> hi, how y'all doing there? Okay. This is when Rebecca, the mother of Esau and Jacob, I should say Jacob and Esau because Jacob takes precedence. But anyway, he was born first, Esau. Uh, she's got these two children struggling in her womb, right? And it says there, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That is what the Calvinists continuously go to. They go to this verse, and they say, See, Jacob is over uh, Esau, and God sovereignly chose him. No, he chose the people of Jacob, not Jacob. And it says it right there in Nations. They ignore what they want to ignore, and they pick and choose verses that say something that fits their theology because they cannot accept that man has free will in salvation. They say it's a work. When he just, in this verse that we're looking at in the book of Romans, says that it is not a work, that faith has nothing to do with works. It is It stands alone apart from works, and we saw that in another verse earlier as well, um, a, a week or two ago. Anyway, so we'll go on. When you read the Bible, you have to look at the words, because words have meaning. I, I, you were saying that earlier. Burke, he's saying how every single word points to something in the Bible. God doesn't waste words. He picks individual words for certain reasons, and it may be used one time in the entire Bible. 
but that word has meaning to him, and he wants us to understand the etymology of it, and he uh, wants us to understand the application of it. And as Burke then tied that into people, God doesn't waste his choice of people. Every single one of them is important to him. It's the person that makes himself unimportant to God, not the other way around. All people are important to God. Anyway, we'll go on. Quoting the uh, noted uh, Bible scholar Albert Barnes, faith is uniformly an act of the mind. It is not a created essence which is placed within the mind. He's obviously right here refuting Calvinism, okay? It is not a substance created in, uh, independently of the soul and placed within it by almighty power. It is not a principle for the expression, uh, for the expression a principle of faith is as, oh, I, let me read this again because my eyes are really boggy right now and I'm not sure why, but anyway, I'm gonna try reading that again. Albert Barnes says this, faith is uniformly an act of the mind. It is not a created essence which is placed within the mind. It is not a substance created independently of the soul and placed within it by the almighty power. It is not a principle for the expression a principle of faith is as unmeaningful as a principle of joy or a principle of sorrow or a principle of remorse. God promises the man believes and this is the whole of it, okay? God makes a promise, man accepts that promise, and that's the end of it. So he is refuting right there, and very eloquently, even though I didn't read it very eloquently, he's refuting the doctrine of regenerate, being regenerated in order to believe, because this is what Paul teaches, is that we must choose Jesus Christ. Okay, as Albert Barnes notes, it is not a created essence which is placed within the mind. In substantiation of this, Barnes reviewed every passage on which the corresponding Hebrew word was used in the Old Testament. And then again, every corresponding time in the Greek was used in the New Testament. His conclusion was that there is not one in which the word is used in the sense of reckoning or imputing to a man what does not strictly belong to him, or of charging on him what ought not to be charged on him as a matter of personal right. In other words, he went through every single possible uh, use of that particular word in the Hebrew and then of the same word in the New Testament, which is in Greek, and he said that there's not one instance which supports the doctrine of Calvinism. Not one, okay? This completely and entirely demonstrates that the doctrine of regeneration as submitted by Calvinism is wrong. Faith which comes from within man results in justification. A man is not regenerated first in order to believe as if God were injecting man with something externally in order for the act to occur. Further, to demonstrate that faith is not a work, we can contemplate the following argument. Okay, this is mine. One, deeds of the law or works do not lead to justification. That's Romans 3.28, okay? 2a, faith is not something required within the context of the law. The law is of works, and it demands perfect obedience. That's Romans 3.19 and Galatians 3.11. 2b, but by faith, a person is justified and declared righteous. Okay, that's Romans 3.28, Galatians 3.24. 3, therefore, because the law demands works, and faith is not a requirement under the law, then faith cannot be a work. It is something entirely different, okay? It is completely evident, fully supportable, and biblically correct to note from this one verse 
that one, belief is an act of the free will of man. Two, it is not placed in man through a nebulous process of being regenerated in order to believe, by which then he then believes. And three, this faith is in no way considered a work. Okay? That's the end of that story. Now, I'm going to bring that up 10 million more times because it's an important doctrine to, to hold on to. And the reason why is because what is the point if you go to a church that says you uh, are regenerated in order to believe? What is the point of giving to missions? What is the point of going out and evangelizing? What is the point of even telling your neighbor, hey, have you ever met Jesus? There's none. Because if God selects everybody, as John Calvin says, that they are predestined in order to be saved. This is God's determined will from before creation. If somebody is predestined in order to be saved, then nothing can thwart that. Would you agree with that? If God says, I'm going to save um, Charlie Garrett in whatever year, nothing can thwart that. So why would somebody come and tell me about Jesus? Why would you even bother? I, I cannot for the life of me understand. And further, why would you want to even bother with knowing theology? Why, who cares? If God has predestined you in order to believe, and you believe, and you're saved, then what, what difference does anything else make? He's already decided that. Well, then that means he's already decided your rewards. He's already decided where you're going to be seated at the heavenly throne. The whole thing is complete. It's in his mind. Don't bother with anything. I would go so far as to say that that is what Cal Calvinism will teach you. So when you go to, you know, a particularly maybe a Presbyterian church or a church like uh, uh, mostly Presbyterians that I can think of, they're, they're usually very strong on the Calvinist tradition. You have to ask them, why do you even bother? Why do you have missions? Why do you do these things? But if your salvation is up to you to exercise faith, okay, I hear the message of Jesus. I receive the message of Jesus. I'm heartbroken over my sins. I want to know this Lord and Savior more then everything else would naturally follow with it. If you really believe that, then you would really want to get to know him more. And then when you hear about the doctrine of rewards, which Paul has been speaking about before we start every week, then you would say, he saved me, I want to pursue him, and I want to receive rewards. Because everything is opened up to you based on free will, not because he's determined it in advance. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't know in advance what your free will is. He does. He knows the choices you're going to make. He knows the things that you're going to do. That does not determine your free will, though. He knows what you're going to do. He is not externally injecting you with that. And that's where appreciation comes from. That's where glorifying God comes from. If he's just chosen you to be saved, what's the point in glorifying him? Thank you and get over with it. And that's it. Anyway, all of it comes back to a state of the heart. All of it comes back to a state of the heart. Now, they will dismiss that. They'll say that God gets more glory because he's doing everything for you. Like I said a couple weeks ago, if I make a robot and I say, go do this and go do this, and I want you to bow down to me, it really doesn't mean anything. I've programmed that to do something. It does, it's not glorifying at all of me. It just shows how smart I am that I can make a robot that can do exactly what I want it to do. But if I give that robot free will and I say, you have been created by me, and that robot turns around and says, I'm so thankful and blah, blah, blah. Then you have a little bit of appreciation going on. You've got something mutually working together. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, it is, uh, therefore, the truth of Scripture indicates from the first pages of Genesis that man has been granted free will. Now, you have to ask them that, and then they, they, they will take the opposite 
path when you say this. If you don't have free will to choose Jesus, then what happened in the Garden of Eden? Oh, well, they exercised free will. That was against God, not for God. So even that is convoluted in them because they admit that you have free will to go out and pick up whatever you want for dinner tonight. You have free will to uh, select the colors for the chairs in the church. You have free will to uh, marry whoever you want. The one thing that you don't have free will in the world is to choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that is utter nonsense. That is absolute craziness. But that's what they will do. You know, yes. Charlie, they're, they're so steeped in this. I have a friend who last night in a, a group meeting, a lady said that she missed an opportunity for the little girl at Publix was stacking her groceries, you know, in the bags. She wanted to know what she was doing with all that bread that we use at church for communion. And she says, what is communion? And the lady said, I've missed the opportunity to have her to take this to the car so I could talk to her. Huh. And this guy says, oh, she's going to be safe. Somebody will cross her path. Huh. You know, and I thought, he reads all of my stuff that I say, whosoever will. I, how many times do you have to read whosoever to get right. whoever, the will? We have a will in this. That's right. But he, he's been in that Presbyterian thing all of his life, and he just steeped he in it. Go. Steeped just, in it. Yeah, Absolutely. He closes his eyes to the... the, the, the it, 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 it's sad because there has to be a point where you have to say, I am willing to tell people about what I know about Jesus. I tell you, when I met the Lord... I couldn't, I couldn't keep it in. I mean, I just, I had a policy. If somebody walked into my office, if they walked over the threshold, I don't care who it is, I'm going to ask them, can I tell you about Jesus? And, you know, one of those things, we talk about this and we say, um, uh, you, you have free will and you need to choose, but there is the Holy Spirit's involvement in it as well. And that's one thing we can't deny, is that if we pray for somebody to be saved, the Lord hears those prayers, and he will send somebody. He will respond to that. He knows the prayers we're going to make. It's not that our prayers change his mind, but those prayers were figured in before he ever created anything. But when people would come into my office, I'll tell you how you know that the Lord is in control ultimately of these things, is that they'd come in and, oh, I'd be ready to talk, and, you know, I, I just was... Everything was perfect. And so somebody would come in and I'd say, can I tell you about Jesus? Oh, sure. And I'd give them the gospel. I'd say everything exactly the perfect way that I, I, I could relay it to them. And they'd walk out and I'd never hear from them again. And then somebody would walk in and I'd think, oh, what a terrible day. I've got a headache and I've got to get this paperwork done. And, you know, everything possible bad could be going on. But my commitment was if they stepped over that aluminum threshold, I was going to ask them. And I'd say... Can I tell you about Jesus? And they'd be like, yes. And I'd like, hey. yeah, I'd really quickly give it to them. And they'd, they'd be sitting there in their chair weeping, <laughs> weeping. And it showed me that it has nothing to do with me. The Lord has prepared that heart to hear the message. And despite me being in the room, that person came to Jesus. But it was still an act of his free will. But that always taught me, because it, it happened time and time and time again, the delivery has much less to do with it than the recept receptability of the person. So never be afraid to talk to somebody about Jesus, even if you don't think you're ready, because that person is. I, I, I can tell you that, and if he is, whatever you say is going to make its, its uh, has, have its intended effect. So, yeah. I heard a good thing about witnessing. The lady got a dog that she really likes. In fact, she said she loved it. I said, no, you don't love dogs. You, you like them, you love people and the Lord. But she says, I want somebody to take care of my dog when I, I'm raptured out of here or I die. It says, you know, you're a Jewish person. 
you're not going to be raptured when the Lord comes. Would you take care of my dog? <laughs> They'll respond with, what? 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 So that way you get an opportunity to tell them about the Lord. Tell them, that's right. <laughs> well, that's a good idea. That is a good idea. Yeah, you're not safe, you so would you take care of my... your doggies, yeah. I, I like that. Yeah, I got six dogs, and... Uh, They're going to be on their own. I, I need somebody to take care of them after the rapture, and if you're not going to be going, please uh, contact me. <laughs> uh, that, that's a very good idea. I like that. That's, that's a very good idea, because, you know... You ask people, what will happen when you die? And they're like, the first thing they say is, well, I'm a good person and I'm this and that. Well, start throwing in the rapture and why should Jesus take you? I like that's a very good approach. (laughs) If the rapture is true and there's no reason to not believe, let's go there really quickly, just just so that we uh, can get off on a tangent for a second. I thought I was the king of... uh, um, what do you call it? Rabbit um, trails. Rabbit trails. But I've been listening to a guy on the radio. For Somebody <laughs> sent me some CDs, and I've been listening to him. This guy is, he is all over the place. He'll start in one thing, and he'll be in another for 20 or 30 minutes. He'll never get back to what he was talking about. Yeah. So, uh, ADD uh, super brain. Very ADD. And he's doing it as it's a recorded <laughs> broadcast. So, I mean, <laughs> the poor people listening to his broadcast are just... They must be. But you tell me how, uh, I'm going to read you a couple verses, and then you tell me how this can mean anything other than it means. Um, We're going to uh, uh, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And Paul, anybody that doesn't know what that means, it means that we shall not all die. Paul uses the term sleep for people that die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will also be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay? I don't know how you can read that any other way than what it plainly says. It says that we're not all going to die, but the trumpet is going to sound, and some of us who are still alive are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know how anybody can say that doesn't mean what it means. Paul couldn't be clear. And then we go to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. Sleep is for the believer. I read your, uh, I read your uh, comment today. I was going to send you something on I decided to send you something else instead because you said the error of, of uh, soul sleep. And uh, so I was going to comment, but we'll talk about that later. I, I, I should have been in here, but I was out there working. So uh, anyway, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on that. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, um, now tie this together with what I just said from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. So once again, he says, brethren, he's speaking to believers in both 1 Corinthians 15 and here. He's speaking only to believers, Okay. And just so you know, we're not PC here. Just as it used to be in English, Hebrew and Greek uses the masculine to speak to a group. If there's one male in the group, then it becomes a masculine word. Okay, that's not a slam on women. It doesn't mean the women aren't going at the rapture. It means that we don't need to have brothers and sisters to understand the word brethren. Okay, there, I just wanted to clarify that. Um, Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that if Jesus died and rose again, which he did, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. Okay, so there are people that are asleep in Christ and Jesus will bring them with him. Okay, now what does that mean? We'll go on. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive, once again, there's people that will be alive when this thing happens, and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. That means those who are asleep aren't going to get gypped out of anything. We're not going to, nothing is going to happen to us before it happens to them. We will not precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's giving these people comfort that the people that have died, those who are asleep in Christ, the dead in Christ, will not be left behind. They will share in the same blessing that the people... Okay, if he's saying this to people about those who are dead in Christ, then what does that mean? That there are people that are not dead in Christ. Okay? And because there are people not dead in Christ, it means that they will still be alive when Christ comes. Once again, I don't know how you can blow this. It says, uh, the dead in Christ will arrive first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. I don't know how somebody can, can anybody here see any other interpretation than a rapture in that? I mean, you have to have it trained into you that that doesn't say what it says. I, I'm frustrated about it, and uh, we'll get back to Romans now. I just had to get that out of me. I, why did we start that? You, you said something. You got me on the side. But it, it's so frustrating to say that this is the word of God. We believe the word of God. We accept it as it's written, and then we don't accept something as clear as 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. I, 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 it can't be interpreted any other way without having something forced into it. Okay. We'll the dogies will be here when we're raptured. That's how we got into The what? It. The dogs. Will oh, the dogs. Thank you. That's how we got into that. Well, okay. The rapture is going to happen. Dogs will be left behind and we need to care for our puppies. You know what? The Lord will take care of it. He is in charge. I'm not worried about my puppies. I'm not doing anything special. They'll run out of water when they run out of water. They'll run out of food when they run out of food. If somebody comes to my house and pillages it and says, hey, six great dogs, they take them great. Whatever happens will happen. The Lord is worried about the redemption of man. Everything else he will worry about in his own sovereign way. Yeah, concerned. Yeah, there's no worry with the Lord. That's right. (laughs) Anyway, I love my pets. He says I don't, but I do. And um, uh, I, I, I... care what happens to them but it's beyond my control when the trumpet sounds i'm not going to be thinking about my pets i'm going to be thinking about the face of jesus so that's right okay um i went through my one two three there therefore the truth of scripture indicates from the first pages of genesis that man has been granted free will and he must exercise that gift in faith further that this faith must be properly directed and in line with the revealed light which god has provided People have all kinds of faith. There's all kinds of faith. People that walk into a store and blow themselves and 15 other people up have faith that they're doing something. It is misdirected faith, okay? It has to be properly directed. There's only one that's going to get us to heaven, and that is Jesus. Muhammad's not going to do it. Buddha's not going to do it. Krishna's not going to do it. But we can't say those people don't have faith. They have faith. It is wasted faith. That's right. It's misdirected. So... Now, to address the second issue of this verse, the timing of God's declaration. And this is what's the important part to me. This is really important, the timing of his declaration. Okay, this is what I was going to start talking about. And fortunately, I typed this up for you when I did my Romans commentary. Genesis 15, verse 6, which this verse from Romans cites, occurred several chapters and many years before the sign of circumcision. 
Circumcision was mandated later in Genesis chapter 17, when Abraham was 99 years old and when Ishmael was 13 years old. However, Genesis 15 was prior to the conception and birth of Ishmael. Therefore, the declaration of righteousness was at least 14 years earlier, possibly more. Further, Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, which is cited in James 2, which everybody says, see, Abraham did works, Abraham did works, came many long years after Genesis 15, 6. Many years. Because Abraham's faith was credited to righteousness prior to either of these acts, circumcision or the offering of Isaac, then neither of them can have any bearing on his declaration at all. And so when I ask a Jew, what can I speak to you about? Now I'll say, I want to talk to you about Jesus, and I will never do it again. That's always my promise, because some people don't want to talk to you unless you give them a, a, a because they know some people just keep talking and talking and never shutting up, and all you do is put a wall between them. Believe me, if you say you want to know more about this and they come to you, talk to them. But you give them a commitment, and they will always say yes. I've never had a Jew tell me, I don't want you to talk to me, me about Jesus when I say I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, and I'll only do it this once. And then I'll say, I'll even let you pick the subject. Do you want to talk about righteousness? Do you want to talk about um, uh, how to, uh, you know, get into heaven? I, you know, I'll give them a list of things, sin, whatever. I'll just say, which issue do you want to talk about? And I've noticed that Jews almost always want to talk about righteousness because they believe that they are the righteous, right? And so inevitably, no matter which subject they talk about, whether it's sin or whether it's righteousness or whether it's uh, uh, the feasts of the Lord, whatever it is, I always bring it back to Genesis 15, 6, always. And the reason why is because Genesis 15, 6 shows them in their own word that they accept as God's word, it shows them that Abraham was righteous before circumcision. So no matter which, what subject, I always get back to righteousness with them. Yes. But he did not have inherited. That's right. He did not. And I, that is something I'm going to talk about in the sermon on Sunday. Abraham did not have inherent righteousness. It was not. And how do we know that? Do you know a verse that will tell you that? Well, he said he declared him righteous. Right? Well, he yeah. declared him righteous, but they could say, well, he was already righteous. Faith chapter Hebrews 11, and that where it says, again, that... Uh, Abraham believed God and it was in Well, that's right. But there is a place that actually explicitly says that he was caught up in idolatry is in Joshua yeah, 24. Uh, 24, I think it's verse 6. And I'll cite that in the sermon on Sunday. It, it proves that Abraham was called out of unrighteousness to righteousness. He was not called from a state of righteousness to increased righteousness or anything like that. Their own word will show them that he was unrighteous and that God bestowed grace and mercy on him and he was declared righteous at that time in Genesis 15, verse 6. And if you tell them that, and then you say, when was Abraham circumcised? And they'll say, well, I don't know. We'll say, I do. And it's in Genesis chapter 17. And they say, okay. And I said, do you know that was at least 15, if not more years before he was, after he was declared righteous? And then they, the wheels start clicking. Oh, oh. It doesn't mean they're going to accept Jesus, but at least they are learning that they are not inherently righteous, that circumcision is not what they think it is. They think it's a badge of their righteousness. It's a badge which points to their need for righteousness, that God has called them to a state of righteousness. Anyway, we'll go on from there, but I just want you to know that you can use this verse, Genesis 15, 6, as a real real starting point with Jews to show them what is going on. And then if you further do it, I did this for... Uh, uh, a uh, guy 
down the road here that he was when we were looking for a church to buy or a building to buy for a church he was Jewish and I talked to him and I uh, threw in after showing him that Abraham was unrighteous became righteous is um, I said okay so why did he have him do circumcision and he said I don't know he said that's just a sign to us and I said yes but it's a sign for something and then I started to talk about circumcision is a picture of something else it's a picture of cutting the sin nature and you take him back to Adam and you say Adam sinned and everybody in Adam receives Adam's sin David proves that in the 51st Psalm I was born in sin right and so you can logically show somebody these type of things if you're willing to just remember these key verses it will help them to understand what their circumcision was actually picturing and it's not their righteousness it's picturing the righteousness of someone to come who was prophesied all the way back at the beginning it's a picture of Jesus that's what circumcision is and he clued into that immediately as soon as I said sin travels through the father and that's a picture of cutting the sin nature he says I know exactly where you're going with this and I said well now you've got a choice to make don't you which I don't know if he ever did and he's never called me about it so I imagine he he didn't but he knew exactly he knew exactly what the circumcision was picturing is the need for a Messiah he knew it, he, he clued in that quickly when I, I wasn't even done with the conversation. So that, anyway, uh, reference is 2414 and 2414. Yeah. I knew. Yes. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river. That's right. Which your father served beyond the river. They served other gods. Yeah. And that's actually confirmed in uh, uh, what's his name? Abraham's words later when he says, um, I can't remember the verse, so I'm not going to get it in there, but it's where a plural verb is used with the word Elohim, which means that it's speaking of gods. It's not speaking of the God, it's speaking of gods. And I'll think of it, and it's in one of my older sermons, but anyway, five times in the Old Testament you have the word Elohim with a plural verb, which means that it is not speaking about the God, it's speaking about gods. Okay, and then you have to understand why is it speaking about gods. So anyway, um, okay. I've gone through three or four of them. Would we got that be Genesis one, two, three. No, 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 no. That that that's a singular. It's when he was speaking, and I, I shouldn't have gotten into this because now you're <laughs> going to want me to do it. And it it's um uh, God, it's, it's right in Abraham's life, and I'm I'm not going to be able to find it, but um. Uh, anyway, next I, I, time. Yeah, next time you remind me, you send me an email because I won't remember that. I will, and then I will tell you there are five times in the Bible where they translate it as God in like the, the your Bible or the King James or whatever, and it's not. It cannot be speaking of God because it is a plural verb with the word Elohim. It's speaking of gods. Okay, and I've defined three or four of them. We've got one or two more to go, and we'll be done. The last one is in the Psalms, so that'll be a while before we get there. But anyway. Um, Let's see here, um, life application on this verse, and then we'll go on. Uh, when reading the Bible, make sure you take time to stop and think through why ideas and concepts are introduced. God is revealing his light to us, and to quickly pass over what is being said will cause you to miss the point of the passage. And be careful to not rely too heavily on, as I say every single week, commentaries, whether it's Charlie Garrett's or whether it's anybody else's. Reading them is fine, but be sure to compare them with what God has laid out. When they conflict with the word, they need to be disregarded. And sometimes it's hard to know. I mean, you can read, uh, I'll do my uh, devotionals here, which these are. I do one a day, and I'm in the book of Colossians chapter 2, and I type verse 15 this morning. And I must have read 12 or 15 very long commentaries 
to understand this verse. And I got to tell you what, not one of them, not one of, it's like the book of Jonah. You know, I, I just would rebelled against all the other commentaries and I gave what I believe is correct. Colossians 2 verse 15 is completely different than any of the commentaries I read state completely. One guy, Charles Ellicott actually translated it properly. He says, but this doesn't make any sense. Just like people did with um, the book of Jonah. Albert, uh, Robert Young, he translated three or four verses that were completely different than anybody else, but they were rejected because they didn't seem to fit. Well, Charles Ellicott translated it correctly, but he gave a commentary saying, well, it probably then means this. When actually it will take you first back to Genesis 3.15, and then it will take you to Exodus 20 when he discusses the earth and altar. If you know those verses, then you will be able to figure out Colossians 2.15 before I publish it in 10 days from now. Because it's a wonderful, I was just, I was so happy to do that commentary this morning because it was that wonderful. Anyway, um, let's see here. We'll go on to verse 4-4. Get rid of that. And uh, let's see here. Now to him who works, the wage, this is something I say at the end of almost every single sermon. I'll always tie in a gospel presentation in case somebody's listening that needs to know how to receive Jesus. But this one here is something that you should remember. To him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. As a matter of fact, I said it at the funeral last Saturday. If you, uh, if you go to work on Monday morning and you work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, at the end of the week, you go to your boss and you say what? Time for my pay. That's right. I have worked for you. Or if you're self-employed like Tom is back there, he works doing things for other people. And if they don't pay him, then he can take them to court because he is owed that money. It is a wage. It is something that you have earned. Okay? So that is the wages of sin is death. That's right. And so uh, we say all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and so we die. This very simple gospel presentation. Then you say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So a gift is something you cannot earn. I went to work, I deserve pay. If somebody gives you a gift and you say, here, let me pay you for it, then you're either going to nullify the fact that it's a gift or you're going to offend the giver. Those are pretty much the only two options. He's either gonna say, no, this is a gift. I don't want to receive your money for it. This is my gift to you. So if you say to God, I'm going to do something for what you have done, then you're going to offend God. And that's what the book of Galatians is. It's completely written about the offense of God at people trying to reintroduce the law, which is unfulfilled. Well, he's going to get into that right now. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Okay, I've got a page that messed up. Okay, here we go. Paul now brings up the subject of wages. When a person goes to, oh, perfect example, I just said it. When a person goes to work at a job as an employee, it is under the premise that he will receive payment for his efforts and that the pay will be comparable to his level of output, skill, knowledge, and so forth. Some people may work for their food and a place to sleep. If you remember the, um, what was it? Uh, trailers for sale or rent, rooms to let 50 cents, no phone, no, phone, no pool, no pets. Ain't got no cigarettes. Roger Miller, remember that song? And he says, uh, uh, two hours for pushing brooms, buys an eight by 12 four bedroom. I'm a man of means by no means. Just gotta get paid. King of the road. Oh. Yeah, king of <laughs> Anyway, so there you go. That's the premise here. That's okay. Yes, that, that's okay though. It's, 
I, it just came to mind and it fit perfectly with this verse. So here we go. It says um, um, uh, he, he wants to be paid for his level of output, his skill and his knowledge. Some people may work for their food and place to sleep, just like Roger Miller, okay, king of the road. Some may work for currency. Some may work for a precious metal like gold, okay? You're working for something. The first time that wages are mentioned in scripture, it was in exchange for, anybody? A bride. Think of that, a bride, because that is a picture of Christ in the church. All the way back, at the, look, my hair standing up just saying that. It was for the price of a bride, okay? That was in Genesis 29, 15, and 18. Let's read that because it's so precious. My, my hair is literally standing up on my arms. If you haven't watched those Genesis sermons, you need to go watch them because they are fantastic. I'm, and not because I'm a good preacher. I'm not saying that. It's because of the material that God has given us. Yes. Um, yes. 29, uh, 15 says... Um, uh, not Isaac and Rebecca, it's, um, uh, uh, what's Laban his name, Jacob and Rachel. And Rachel. Yeah. yeah, okay. Then Laban said to Jacob, Be because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, Rachel. so he... Uh, said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Okay, first time it's pictured in, uh, wages are mentioned in the Bible, and it's a picture of the grace of Christ. If you remember the story, maybe you don't remember, you got to go watch those sermons. Leah pictures, does anybody remember what she pictures? Very clear. She pictures the law. Remember, what, what part of her does the Bible focus on? The eyes. And what does it say? They're weak, weak eyes. And what does it say about the law in the New Testament? It is weak and unprofitable. Okay? Every single word in Scripture is given for a reason. She's a picture of the law. She's a picture of grace. Her name is Rachel, which means lamb. And guess what? That Rachel is uh, named in Isaiah 53, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Everything about it, every word is showing us the law and grace, even all the way back in Genesis. So, wonderful stuff in those Genesis sermons. Um, Let's see here. Um, an agreement was made and the wage was paid based on the work performed with a little cunning on the part of Laban. Okay, does anybody remember what the name Laban means? It's like conniver or something. No, like it's coming up in a sermon again very soon. Anyway, it comes from uh, the word which means brick, Laban. Okay, which in turn is white. And the reason why is because a brick turns white when it's, uh, when it's fired. Okay, so... Laban means brick. And what do you do when you build something? You use bricks. It's a, he's a picture of working your way to heaven, okay? Bricks, okay? It, it, it's all there. It's very, very beautiful to see what God is showing us in those Genesis sermons. Anyway, Laban, or Lavan in Hebrew, uh, which is tied in, just so you know, because we're going to go through this in, a, I think it's next week, maybe the week after that. Um, uh, no, it was last week. Did I do the grain offering last week? Yes. I did. Well, then nobody paid attention because it's the word levona. And levona comes from Laban, meaning white or brick. And the levona is Christ's work on our behalf. Anyway, there you go. I so, didn't associate that with you, you didn't associate it. Well, there you go. Now, <laughs> see, everything's tied together. Everything is tied together in the Bible to continuously show us again and again and again. It is not by works. It is by grace. It is not by the law. It's by the work of Christ fulfilling the law in our, but everything, it all, he, he says it in 10 
thousand different ways so that we are absolutely sure that what he is saying is correct. You might misinterpret this picture in Genesis and this one and this one and this one, but by the 400th time, it has to be that God is telling us it is grace. It is grace. And that's what he's telling us here. Okay, we'll go on. Um, uh, the concept of earning something for accomplishing deeds is found throughout scripture and is found throughout human history. The word for work in this passage indicates the doing of something by which something else will result. Okay? The word for wages is translated exactly as noted wages. Perfect translation. It is dues paid for working. The word for counted is also well chosen. It is to reckon or impute or account. And the word for grace, which is found throughout the New Testament, speaks of unmerited favor. Okay, it is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. All of us deserve hell. God gives us mercy. Grace is not get, is getting what you do not deserve, right? Um, and that would be like rain falling on your crummy neighbor and righteous you, or vice versa. He's a good guy and you're bad, whatever. Grace is not getting what you do deserve, okay? No, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay, got to make sure I get that right. Okay, um, uh, and grace is the word found in the New Testament, unmerited favor. Finally, debt is something that is due, either for the sake of what is just or what is legally necessary. Something is owed, and we talked about that. You go to work, something is owed you, okay? If you have something that's owed you and you don't get it, then the debt is outstanding. That's why, ooh, great stuff coming on uh, Sunday. Genesis, I'm sorry, John uh, 19, verse 30 has something to do with uh, exactly what we're talking about here. Taking all of these words and considering them from what Paul has been teaching us, there is a contrast between working to receive wages and demonstrating faith in order to obtain grace. We've already proved in this verse, the previous verse, and in several verses already, that faith is not a work, okay? It cannot be associated with a work, and that's why this is such an important tenet here. Um, where was that uh, debt is uh, something that's owed? Uh, where was a, a great obtain grace? A person who attempts to be justified by deeds of the law feels that God somehow owes him and that he has merited good standing in his presence. His salvation is earned. And this is what, like I say, you go up to somebody and you say, why should Jesus allow you into heaven? What are they going to tell you? Almost everybody says the same thing. They say, I'm a good guy. I've done good things. I petted a puppy yesterday. I helped an old lady across the street. I painted my neighbor's house. He's a war veteran and he's got uh, his, he's missing his legs. It always comes back to, I have done something and God appreciates that. God owes me because I have done this thing. That is the, the first thing that almost every person that you ask about salvation will say. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Now, there are those people. There are those rare people you walk up to and say, you know, why should God let you into heaven? And he says, you shouldn't. I'm a terrible person. That guy doesn't need to hear all the stuff we're talking about right now. He didn't need to hear that at all. All you do is you say, you know what? Jesus says that you do deserve a place in heaven because of him. Not because of what you've done right or wrong, but because he loves you enough to forgive you of what you've done wrong. Man, a person like that is so ready to jump into the grace of Christ that you almost don't need to say anything. Thief on the cross. Thief on the cross. Absolutely. He is just ready to understand what he needs. And that's, if you believe that you're righteous or that you have somehow merited God's favor, you need the law and you need what Paul is talking about right here to show you how wrong that is. Okay. Um, 
Uh, he stands in good merit, his presence, he's earned his salvation. On the other hand, a person who understands that God's grace cannot be earned places his trust completely and entirely into the hands of God, knowing that what he deserves is condemnation, but what he seeks is God's pardon. And uh, when we talk about a pardon, it, we're fortunate to live in America because a lot of the world doesn't really understand a pardon. Now, uh, uh, under a king, you might but a lot of governments don't ha have what we would consider the pardon in America, is that you commit a felony and the president has a right to completely wipe that off your slate. He's the only person in the country that can do it. And when he does that, it is typed up and it is sent to the person saying that you are forgiven completely and entirely of what you have done. Not only are you forgiven, pardoned, but that is wiped off of your record. It can't be put on your tombstone. It can't. Be, it is completely removed from you by the presidential pardon. But guess what? A presidential pardon can be turned down. The president does not have a right to pardon a person against his will. And that came out. I think it was under Andrew Jackson. Somebody says, "You can pardon." I don't want your stinking pardon. And they said, "Well, the president signed it." And he sued. And the Supreme Court of the United States said. That is correct. You cannot force a pardon on this person. If he wants this on his record, then it will stay. And so it's a perfect picture of what we have in Jesus Christ because the pardon is written, your name is on it, but you must receive it. God does not force his pardon on anybody and he does not withhold it from anybody willing to receive it. Every person on this earth is given a pardon through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. It, it, I'm so glad you said that because I got to tell you what, it is such an important tenet to understand that Christ died for every single human person on this planet. Human person, that's a redundancy. Anyway, that commentary I was reading this morning or yesterday says that that's not true. That God, that Christ died for certain people and not all people. And I can't think of a worse way of portraying the work of Jesus Christ than saying what that commentary said. He died for every single person on this planet, but every person on this planet must willingly come to him. Okay? So, tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2, 9. That's right. He tasted death for every man. Yeah. How do you do that? Now, it, that, that's an interesting thing because not every man is going to die. So tasting, and I said this to Burke a while ago, tasting can be a vicarious act. He tasted death for everybody, but not everybody will die because we've already seen the rapture verses earlier. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, we're not all, all going to die. Hopefully it'll be, you know, sometime before any of us die and then we don't have to face that. But that means it would be pretty soon, I hope. But um, uh, he tasted death for us. So tasting in the Bible can be a vicarious act. It can be something that God has done for us that we don't have to participate in. And that's an important thing to understand. But we'll go on. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, this uh, The contrast between the two is this. Wages. The law looks to a trial based on merit. If you have a law and you say, if you, the man does these things, shall live by them, uh, Leviticus 18, verse 5, then it's based on merit. The law looks to a trial based on merit. The trial will be perfectly fair, and it will... I hate to tell you, it will lead to condemnation. If you are trusting in your works before the law, you will be condemned. There is no other possibility for it because it says the man who does these things will live by them and nobody can do them. The law 
proved itself for hundreds and hundreds, even more than a thousand years, that nobody could meet the demands of the law. If you attempt to be justified by the law, you will be condemned. That's why they had the Day of Atonement, was to forgive them for what they could not meet in the demands of the law. It was grace. God always brings us back to grace, always. Two, grace. Faith in Jesus seeks God's favor through the work of another and the receiving of a pardon based on his accomplishments. Nothing we've done, but it does require faith. Faith is not a work. We've shown that. Faith is not a work. Life application for you. The choice is given to all. Will we attempt to merit God's favor by our own works, or will we place our trust in the work of Jesus? The biblical record stands, Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf if we are willing to accept it. Either way, we're going to be judged by the exact same standard. Every person on this planet will be given the same standard. It will be fair, and it will either lead to condemnation or to justification. Choose wisely. Choose Jesus. He fulfilled the law. We can't. And so we're going to be judged by the same standard. Either we are in him and his fulfillment of the law, or we are not in him, but we're still being judged by the law. So God is perfectly fair. He will, nobody will be able to say, but, when they stand before the Lord. Nobody. Okay, verse 4, 5. Got time. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Let me read it again. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, meaning Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Okay, this is the amazing truth of the gospel revealed in all of its glory. The ungodly, the sinner, is justified by faith and not by works. This takes us back to Romans 3, verse 31. What did that say? It said, um, uh, do we then make the law void through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Jesus fulfilled the law for us, and therefore when we place our faith in him and what he did, we establish the law by faith. The righteous requirements of the law are met in him, in Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us through faith in that act. Every time I read this, it just I, I, I think to myself, it's so marvelous. I can read this a thousand times and I can still say to myself, it's so marvelous. Every single thing is tied up in this perfect box that God has given us. It is so marvelous that there's, you just think it through. There's no way out of it. You want to work around it somehow? You can't. If you want to say there's another way, there isn't. And yet the way that is there is so marvelously easy. It's so wonderfully pure. It's so gloriously good. And people don't want it. They work against it. I don't understand it. I cannot understand it. it, it, it my hair's standing up all over my arms just reading these words. This brings us to an important concept, though. If we attempt to be justified through works of the law and fail at them, then, of course, we can never be justified. But just as important as an attempt to be justified by deeds not recorded in the law, trusting in our own law. If we attempt to establish our own righteous standards by adding to God's word, then we're guilty of exactly that, adding to the word of God. And how many churches do that? They say, you're saved by grace in Jesus, but now you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. They're adding to God's word by saying that there's something more you need to do now that you're saved. What is it that you need to do? What works will further justify you before the Lord? 
That's what Catholicism actually teaches in, in, in explicit writing. Other te- churches just say it, you know, without writing it down into a codified law. But the Catholic Church actually says you have to do this and this and this, and none of it can satisfy. What can you add to what Christ has done? That's the question. All right. If we attempt to establish our own righteous standards by adding to God's word, then we're guilty of adding to the word of God. This is what Jesus condemned uh, when addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. He repeatedly makes a distinction between the word of God and the traditions of men, such as in Mark 7, verses 6 through 9. So let me read that to you, Mark 7. Mark 7. We were just in Mark something earlier, weren't we? What was that? Uh, I think it was Mark 7, Mark 6, somewhere right around there. Mark Jesus 7. brothers. Yeah, Jesus brothers. We were talking about that before the class. Mark 7, verses 6 through 9 says... Half brothers. Half brothers, yes. But they're still his brothers. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you keep your tradition. Tradition kills. Now, uh, the commentary I was listening to today on my... Uh, my uh, radio on the way here, the guy's right. He says there are traditions at the time of Jesus that people followed that were not recorded in the Bible. And he gave the example of the Passover. The Passover doesn't really give any explanation for running a Passover cedar at all. You get the directions in uh, Exodus 12, I think it is, where it says you're going to observe the Passover and you're going to do this thing. And after that, it never tells them what to do after that. How do you commemorate it? It says you're to commemorate it. But the tradition of man, we know it's true. Because it says that on the Passover night, Jesus and the apostles did something together. What did they do? They what? They broke bread. Okay, but they did something else. They sang a a, a hymn. Well, actually, what it is is they sang the psalms. And there are certain psalms that they would sing at that time. It's like Psalm 113 through 117. I think that's right. And so uh, uh, that is a tradition. It's never laid out in the Bible. And yet it's something that the people follow. So traditions can be helpful, but they can never supplant the word of God. They're just simply something to help people along so that they can remember what they're doing. You know, we've got all kinds of traditions we follow. We do it in churches. We do it at work. You know, we do it in home. But those things are not the word of God. They just simply help us to remember things and how to run our life and, you know, whatever. But those never supplant the word of God. The word of God stands alone. And if we didn't have those traditions, Jesus singing the psalm, it wouldn't have changed anything. It would not have changed anything because we have the word of God, which tells what Christ was going to do. So never allow a tradition to take the place of what the word of God says. It's fine to have traditions, do whatever you want, but keep them in their proper perspective. As God's word is truth, and because God is love, then the proper proclamation of God's word, no matter how painful or cutting, is a loving action. It establishes the law of God. Truth and love are not at war with each other. They complement each other. This is why properly handling the message of Christ is so very important. When we attempt to be justified by our deeds, we actually set aside the grace of God. When we teach others to do so, we bring condemnation, not salvation, to those who follow suit. It is the most unloving action imaginable. And think of it. You know, you uh, uh, you uh, 
tell somebody the truth of God's word. If you don't receive Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. And what will people say about that nowadays? What a terrible thing. What an evil God. You're, you're just being judgmental. And you hear all of these arguments. That's not at, at war at all with love. That is completely in accord with love because God has said what he is going to do. He has instructed what the ultimate end of all people are. It is either salvation or it's condemnation. It's not unloving to tell somebody the truth. It is the most loving thing you could do. If I decide, well, I'm embarrassed to tell somebody about Jesus, think of the ramifications of that. Think of it. If somebody doesn't receive Jesus because you were too scared or too unwilling to tell them about Jesus, what kind of a what kind of a, a testimony is are you going to be able to give in the presence of the Lord? Well, I really didn't want to offend. Well, guess what? You're going to watch them forever cast into hell because you weren't willing to open your mouth and speak. What an unloving thing to do. Truth is not at war with love. It is completely in accord with it. I'm not one to dwell on hell. You know, I never mention it in sermons. I'd rather focus on the good side of Christ. But hell is a reality. It is something that we cannot deny. And if somebody asks about it, you have to be firm. You have to be truthful about it. Anyway, um, life application on this verse. It is either the Bible or the teachings of man which brings salvation. If you're in the Catholic Church, they say it's the Bible plus the teachings of man. Therefore, it's not the Bible at all. Because if it was the Bible, then it would be the Bible alone. It cannot be both. It is either one or the other, okay? It's one or the other. The two are incompatible with each other. In our walk, we must decide who we will follow and why. And let us never fail to stand on God's word alone, lest we be found to have fallen short of his grace, okay? Uh, verse four, six. That one went fast. That was just a short little verse. I told you we'd get through three verses today. Uh, actually, I told him we'd be in chapter seven today. I don't think we're gonna make it. Um, let's see here, verse six, just as David also describes the blessedness of man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now we have to get through verse seven and eight because uh, it's all one thought. I'm gonna give you my thoughts first on verse uh, four, six, but it is a masterpiece of understanding that the law cannot save anyone. And it comes right from the pen of David and it comes from the Psalms. Okay, verse four, six, the verse this verse here precedes two verses which form a quote from the 32nd Psalm. In this quote, Paul will show how David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. In other words, in a masterful insight into the heart of the doctrine of justification by faith, Paul will go to David, a man under the law, to show how righteousness is attained. It is by imputation from God apart from works. It's amazing that he goes to David. David is under the law. David is writing a psalm, and yet David understood enough to understand what the blessed state of a man was, and Paul uses that, understanding what David was thinking. Not only was David a man under the law, but he was also what? He was the king of Israel, and the one through whom the promise of Messiah, Messiah would come. So he's, he's, the, he's everybody. He's a man of Israel. He's a man under the law given to Israel by the uh, Lord God. He is the king of the people of God under the law. And he has already been given a promise that the Messiah is going to come through him. 2 Samuel 7, uh, 1 Samuel 7. Anyway, um, what? 2 Samuel 7. Okay, thank you. Two, yes, thank you. 2 Samuel 7. Okay, but he is the guy. 
is the guy that should be able to say, I'm right with God. I know that my deeds and my position and my status has made me right before God. If anybody could claim that, anybody, it would be him because of his position within Israel, above Israel, and with the knowledge that the Messiah is going to come through him, okay? If anyone had a reason to boast before the Lord, it would certainly be David. Yes, it's 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. I had it right here. And Anyway, um, as the author of a large portion of the Psalms and the one who received the instruction for the building of the king's temple directly from the Lord, add on more good stuff to him, which is 1 Chronicles 28, verse 19, David had an intimate relationship with God. He had a grasp of the intent and the purpose of the law, and it's apparent enough through his words that he knew that the righteousness of God came not from the law itself, but from the one who gave the law in the first place. How could David know this? Because the law not only promised life to the one who lived by it, which is Leviticus 18.5, I cited that earlier, the man who does these things will live by them, okay? But it also promised punishment and death for those who failed to do so. And David, this great and noted king, failed. Remember, he slept with the person and he had another person uh, uh, killed in order to uh, cover up what he did. And then later he did the census. And uh, so he was a guy that understood that despite his great position and his great authority and all of the things about that, that he was a failure. He could not do the things of the law. If you do the things of the law, the man who does the things of the law shall live by them, right? I'm going to say that probably 10 times in the sermon on Sunday. When he was faced with his own sin, which under the law was worthy of death, God's prophet spoke these words to him. It, he said, the Lord has also put away your sin. You will not die. So the Lord had to take away his sin in order for him to live because the law had condemned him already. The Lord's mercy was bestowed upon David apart from the law. David thus deduced that if this occurred, then God's other divine attributes were also to be realized in our relationship with him, only apart from the law, not under the law. The law then must have had another purpose than to bring man into a right relationship with God. And he realized that. The law isn't intended to bring us into a right relationship with God, because if it was, then I'd be in the right relationship. The law then must have had this second purpose. Although David didn't have a full comprehension of the work of the Messiah, he did understand the blessedness of man who received God's righteousness apart from the law. In the book of Galatians, Paul will show that the law was a tutor, a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Somehow, in his ponderings of the work of God, David understood this, even if in a limited way. The quotes Paul uses from David's hand will clearly show this. Now think of this guy. This is the king of Israel, but he took time. He is called Israel's sweet, sweet psalmist, okay? He took the time to write psalms. And when he did, it was always in relation to something that happened in his life. You know, he's stuck in a cave and his enemies are coming after him and he writes a psalm. He, uh, he uh, is rescued from somebody's hand in Gath or some other place and he writes a psalm. And if you think about Israel at the time, there weren't cars, there weren't streetlights, it was very dark at night. You go out and all you could see, just like Abraham, would be the stars in the sky, a billion stars. And you would have the ability to sit and to think about what happened in my life today. 
we don't have that time today because as soon as we're done with what happened to our life today, we turn on the TV and we watch the TV and we don't evaluate our own position in relation to what has occurred. Very few people take the time to do that, but David did. And he was able to go out into the desert or wherever he wrote his Psalms and to look up and to think about what happened in his life. And that's what he wrote about here. When he understood his own need for grace apart from the law, he was able to write these words. And it didn't just come by him sitting down and saying, okay, today I did this and we're gonna have dinner in a minute, let me finish this up. He took time to think it through logically. That's the marvel of thinking about David. He's the king of Israel and he stopped and he took time to think things through. Very rare in the world, very rare. And as I said, in today's world, you don't see it at all because there's always something coming at us. We got a phone, it rings, we pick it up. I get, how often do you see people walking down the, the road? There's a guy and a girl, a husband and a wife, 50, maybe 60 years old, and they're each talking on the phone to somebody else. And I think, why even, why even walk with each other? Why even bother because you're talking to somebody else? If you are going to be with your wife, be with your wife. If you're gonna go out to dinner with your family, I was at word of mouth with, um, who was it? Either Paul or Jeremy about six months ago and I went to the word of mouth right over on the next road. And a family of four people came in, father, mother, and two boys. They walked in, they sat down, and not one of them said one word to each other the entire meal. All four of them sat on a different iPad or iPhone or whatever, and they did this. And when the guy came to order, they ordered. Then they went back and they did this. They ate during eating. They did talk a little bit because, you know, they were spitting food up at each other and not really. But anyway, they did talk a little. But as soon as one got done with their meal, got right back on that thing. And they never said a word to each other. What a waste. Anyway, I, I just David didn't have to worry about those things. And he took the time to write what we're going to see. Here's the life application from this. Um, God authored the law, which is finite in its scope, and so it cannot be the full extent of our relationship with him. However, it is eternal in its purpose. It must be fulfilled, and yet we cannot fulfill it. Therefore, the righteousness of God must come to us apart from our deeds under the law. It must come from Jesus, who embodies the perfection of it. In him alone can our righteousness be found. Be sure to give God the glory for doing through Jesus what we could never do. Uh, and think of it, because we're coming up on that day in another six hours, five hours and 45 minutes, we're coming up on what we would call Good Friday. If you're watching online and you believe that Jesus was crucified on a Thursday or a Wednesday, please email me and I'll tell you where you're wrong. I've got it all laid out. If you are, a lot of people have had this over the years. Every year this argument comes up and people all over Facebook quote Matthew out of context and they, they say that. And I might as well get this done because we got enough time to do these two verses. Is that all you need to do is look for one phrase which is found in all four Gospels. Nobody does this, but if you go to the word preparation day and you look at what the Gospel says in relation to the words preparation day, you can come to no other conclusion than he was crucified on Friday. Okay, there are many other reasons and I have the entire timeline laid out. It took me hours and hours to do it, but if you wanna know how to, de to defend this, and why do we need to defend what day Jesus was crucified on? Is because there are several reasons. I'm gonna give you just one so you can think this through. If you backdate his crucifixion, say to Thursday or to Wednesday, then you now change Palm Sunday to Palm Saturday, okay, the Sabbath. 
if he rode the donkey on the Sabbath, he violated the law and he is not the Messiah of the world. Okay. We have Jimmy D. Young, who's a great Bible teacher. He's over in Israel all the time. He actually teaches that. It was Palm Saturday. If so, Jesus violated the law because you're not to work an animal on the Sabbath. Okay. It's not. There are all kinds of little things that crop up that are wrong with your theology if you believe that it was a Thursday or a Wednesday. It was not. It was a Friday. The timeline is very easy to rectify. It says 13 times in the New Testament that Jesus was raised on the third day. On. If Sunday is the day he was raised and nobody disputes that, then Saturday, then Friday. It's that simple. But there are a million other ways to do it. I take you through the whole timeline. Just want you to know that because we are going to celebrate that tomorrow, and then we're going to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. Is that on your Facebook? It is on my Facebook. I posted it there. It's also at the end of one of my sermons if you want to read that, or I'll just send it to you directly. But it's a very clear timeline. There is no other possibility. There is no other possibility than Christ was crucified on a Friday. Don't take Matthew out of context and decide that it says three days and three nights. And guess what? It says three days and three nights in uh, the book of Esther right? The women will fast for three days and three nights or have all the people fast. And it says on the third day, she went into the king. So obviously there's a Hebrew or Hebraism that people are misunderstanding. All right. If I say I worked 10 days, night and day, it doesn't mean that I worked 10 days, night and day. All right. And yet I worked 10 days. All right. Let's, so we'll go on. I don't want to go on. I want to finish this because we got these two wonderful verses to do and then we'll be done for the day. Verse four, Seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, David, lawless deed, he committed adultery with a woman, he had Uriah killed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. This is the first half of Paul's quote from the 32nd Psalm. Paul, citing David, shows the state of blessedness or happiness of those who are forgiven of their misdeeds. Paul changes the quote from the singular to the plural, though. David's original words say, blessed is he who's blah, blah, blah. This thought then covers all who are included, male and female, Jew and Gentile, me and you. Okay, all of us. In the forgiveness of lawlessness and the covering of sin, a person stands justified and free from guilt, even though the offenses actually occurred. David really did what he did. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was responsible for the death of Uriah. And moving forward in time means that these actions cannot be undone. He can't go back and unkill Uriah. He cannot go back and un-adultery or whatever you would say with Bathsheba. It can't be done. Whatever has occurred is done. It's over. A finite crime thus, and I say this every week, I say the same thing every week, a finite crime infinitely separates man from an infinite creator. One sin committed in the stream of time infinitely separates you from your infinite creator. It is done. We can never undo our deeds. And that's why when Adam sinned and we are in Adam, we are infinitely separated from God, even from the moment of conception. It's a truth we cannot get away from. But God, the creator of time, has the ability to do what we cannot do. This is the Thus, this is the truly blessed person who obtains access to this infinite fountain of grace and mercy. When forgiveness occurs, the sins are covered. They can never be seen again. The Bible repeatedly confirms this. We can go to Psalm 103. Somebody go to Micah 719. 
and somebody go to Isaiah 38, 17. And I'll go to 103, verse 12, really quickly. We'll read these, and I hope we'll get done with all this before we're done today. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, uh, where am I? 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19, somebody? Okay. Two pages. You're going the wrong way then. <laughs> 19. And he will again have compassion on us and he will treat our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Into the depths. Okay, Isaiah 38, 17. Whoever gets there, just read it. And there are lots of others. These are just three I picked out that were good. Isaiah 38, 17. Indeed, it was for my own welfare that I had such great bitterness, but your love has delivered me from the pit of destruction, for you have thrown all my sins behind your back. Hmm. Completely behind his back. They're, they're gone. He's just tossed them over his shoulder. These and other metaphors are intended to show the complete and eternal nature of forgiveness and justification. When a transgression is covered, it is forever gone. When forgiveness is granted, it has become a garment of righteousness. And when a person is justified by faith, it stands forever as a seal and a promise from God that a right relationship again exists. How somebody can't see eternal salvation in the words of the Bible, I don't understand, but they can. Life application. The blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from some unrighteousness and ungodliness. All, thank you, all unrighteousness and ungodliness. What has been cleansed by him is forever clean and holy. As proof of this, the believer in Jesus Christ has been given a deposit, the Holy Spirit of promise. When you err and fall short of God's glory, remember this. Despite your faults, you are eternally safe and secure in the hands of God. Okay, we're going to finish up one more verse, and we've got just enough time. Verse 4, 8. It says, blessed is the man, I'm going to read both of them now. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Well, guess what? If you're under the law, the law does what? It imputes sin. So David cannot be speaking of a person that is saved under the law. He cannot be. Okay, Paul again quotes David from the 32nd Psalm, which is verse 2. There, David noted that the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin is blessed. However, the law demanded, it demanded, there is no exception, that his sin be tried and punished. He had committed adultery and murder. Both were capital offenses and transgressions against God. He couldn't go back in time and undo what he had done. Time is ever moving forward, and yet God provided atonement for him and for those who put their faith in him through sacrifice and repentance. The law demands death, and yet he was given grace. The question is, did the sacrifices, such as those on the Day of Atonement, take away sin? Just covered it. The answer is given in both Testaments, and the answer is no. The blood of bulls and goats could never, never take away sin. That's in Psalm 51. Tell you what, go to Hebrews 10, 4, somebody, anybody, and I'm going to go really quickly. We'll read these because we still have a couple minutes. I got Psalm 51. 
And let's see here, Psalm 51. 10-4. Uh, yeah, go ahead and read 10-4, please. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Impossible. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Why? Because they're in a completely different category than man. It doesn't work. They're not sentient beings. All you're doing is you're saying, I am guilty. This animal is innocent. I'd like its sins to cover over my sins. And it temporarily did, but it could not take away the sins. Okay, Psalm 51, verses 16 uh, says, um, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth praise for you. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. I'll even go on. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. If I have a hard heart towards God and I bring my offering to the temple, my sacrifice is no good at all to the Lord. No good. It must be accompanied by a contrite heart and a broken spirit over what has happened. And that's what we're being taught even in the Old Testament, confirmed in the New. So what provided the atonement? It was faith that God would withhold his wrath for the sins committed. That is what did it. And remember what it says in the uh, Day of Atonement rituals. If the man who doesn't uh, who uh, doesn't fast and uh, abase himself for that day will be cut off from his people. He had to have a contrite heart before the Lord, understanding that he had not fulfilled the law over the past year. The man who does these things shall live by them. They're required to observe the Day of Atonement, meaning that God knew that none of them, not one person in Israel, had done the things by which he could live by. Not one. So the law is telling us, even in the law itself, that it is insufficient to save anybody. It goes on. Um, the sacrifice is merely pointed to the final sacrifice of Jesus. Even if the people didn't know that this was the case, it was faith in God and his promises and a humble walk before him. Passages such as Micah 6, verses 6 through 8 show us this. Um, did we read that earlier? We read Micah something. Seven. My, Micah 7. Let me find that really quickly here, Micah. Whipping right over that baby. Micah, what did I say? Six, six through eight. Oh, what does the Lord require of you? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Very good. Okay, so um, the questions Micah asked demanded a negative response. All of the sacrifices and offerings in the world were useless without a heart for God and without faith in his providence. It is through faith that the blessedness is received. When faith is exercised, the sins are pardoned and felicity between God and man is restored. Oh, yeah, just enough time for a life application. Have faith in God's promises which come through the person and work of Jesus. This is what pleases God, not church attendance or charitable giving. After your faith is established, then these things will have meaning. But without it, they're just vapor which fades away. Okay? Let's David see. went into the temple there in 2 Samuel. Right. And sat before him and says, You're speaking so good of my house for years to come. What is it's with me that you could do this? You know? Absolutely. He, he was just, but he went to church. <laughs> he went to church. He did go to church and he, uh, he uh, pondered the Lord in a way that very few have ever pondered the Lord. You know, we just, like I say, we get away from that in this world, and we have to set time aside to say, I am going to read the Word, I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to fail in this. Okay, we have to, because if not, like I said, 
you work all day, you're out traveling, you're out doing whatever you're doing, you get home and the, oh, I just need to unwind. And how do we unwind today? We don't read the word, we turn on the TV. We sit there and we just, it's kind of a passive, you know, uh, whatever. But if we say, I'm going to commit to doing this, I'm going to commit to going to Bible class once a week, I'm going to commit to, or twice a week or three times a week, some of you go to several Bible classes, you know, I'm going to commit to going to a prayer meeting. I've never been a good prayer meeting person, but some people really enjoy that. But you have to say, I'm going to commit to this, and you have to say, this is going to be a priority over the other things of the world. Because if you don't, it'll never happen. But I will tell you this, I suggest from time to time in the uh, church service that people that don't have time to read the Bible should get an audio Bible, and they should listen to it when they're driving. And a guy emailed me this past week, and he said, Charlie, he said, I finally took you up on this. I drive 40 minutes each way every day. He says, a couple days ago, he started. He's already in Leviticus. He's already in Leviticus. And he says, I'm so thankful. I'm absolutely, look at my hair standing up all over. Because he's getting the word as he's driving. He's listening to the word of God. And he's hearing it. And it's being instilled in him. So if you don't do any other thing during the day, spend that time instead of listening to Rush Limbaugh or, or Journey or Led Zeppelin, Listen to the word of God and you will be rewarded for it. You're going to thank the Lord for his word. I know you are. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Jack, do you pray? I think I've asked you to pray before, haven't I? No. No, would you like to? If you don't want to, it's fine. Well, I, I don't want to put people on the spot. Yeah, I'd like to be better prepared. Okay, that's fine. That's all right. Burke, you're going to close us then. I, I understand. I don't mean to put you on the spot there. I just, yeah. all right. Lord, we thank you that you have a plan for us to get our nose in the book and to learn. And we just thank you for that. You give us, you impute to us your righteousness and justification. We, we thank you for that. Thankful for our hope in you. Guide each of us that we would express this to other people and be able to answer for what we believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you. Let me back this baby up, and you can say goodbye to folks online. Let's see here. Oh, that's still okay. Oh, I see. It went back and then break. There we go. Kind of freaked me out. If you guys would give me a hand and bring in. We love you. Have a wonderful week now. We'll see you later. If you guys would give me a hand and bring in the... Um, the flowers yeah outside so, somebody drop them by for us and um i think it is i'm going to tell you all this now and then i'm going to announce this again on sunday I, I i'm certain that it's the people that i used to attend with at the korean church and they have a restaurant up in the commons which is um right at fruitville and beneva you've got the sarasota commons and you've got a mcdonald's right there if you turn Go behind the McDonald's, you get into the Commons, and there is right now a uh, Kmart there. That's going to be gone soon, and I think there's a Bell's Outlet, and there's a few places. There's a Korean restaurant, and I'm telling you, it is really good. They opened about six or seven months ago. I've been there four or five times, and I keep meaning to mention it, and then I get sidetracked, but I would hope that you guys would. What's that? No, they won't. They're good people. They won't do that. Anyway, um, they came by and they they brought these these easter lilies for us but i know they'll be stolen if we don't bring them in so yeah there are about 10 of them they just need to be brought in and uh, anyway that was so nice of them i mean that was just that was so marvelous that they did that